it is just hard. It's like I can be in this very intellectual, analytical place, hear the legal arguments, think through them, even sort of sit with my emotions, and then to come back around to this most likely will not change a thing. It is so, so hard to sit with that, to listen to Lindsey Graham on cable news say, well, they're converting more people to acquittal. It makes me feel like my entire body is aflame. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Everyone and welcome to a- another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are so thrilled to be here with you today. We're going to be talking about impeachment. I'm sure that doesn't come as a surprise to anyone. We have some moment of hopes to share. And of course, we'll end the show with what's on our mind outside of politics. What we love is when all of you share what's on your minds, both political and non. And we put a lot of that incredible insight into our weekly newsletter. So if you are not subscribed, go to pantsuitpoliticsshow.com and scroll down and enter your email at the box at the bottom of the page because you're missing out if you're not getting our Friday newsletter. A huge thank you and warm welcome to Sarah Greenup, our newest executive producer. If you'd like to learn more about supporting Pantsy Politics and get lots of bonus content that we put tons of hard work and thought into every week, you can head over to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. Sarah, thank you. We're so glad you're here. We should say we just recorded a very salty nightly nuance this week where we go off on both the New York Times decision to fire Don McNeil and the coverage of COVID in the media. So if you want a little spicier takes, the Thursday nightly nuance is where it's at. Well, let's talk about impeachment. And I have a feeling there are going to be some spicy takes here, too. But considered spice, I hope, Mm -hmm, is what mm -hmm, we do. mm -hmm, Complex mm -hmm. spice. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. begin by talking about the way this trial started. It is ongoing as we're recording. Certainly things will develop after this conversation and before you hear the podcast. We do know, though, that we have some Republican senators who are very dug in on the idea that the Senate should not be having this trial at all. So dug in that they even voted against the bipartisan plan for the rules of how much time everyone would get. 
Well, let me just roll right in with the spicy take. They're dug in because it gives them an excuse, right? Like, do we actually think that they're all pouring over constitutional law documents and have just really carefully considered that despite the fact that we've done it previously in our history, that the Constitution does not allow us to impeach former officials? No. we. This gives them a process argument to lean on and not take a vote for conviction that they don't want to take that's politically risky for them. I mean, you can look at what has happened in the few days since GOP Senator Bill Cassidy from Louisiana switched his vote and voted that it was, in fact, constitutional to impeach a former president to see why they're so terrified to vote for a conviction. I mean, he's been censured. He's getting called out. He's taken all kinds of heat just for simply saying this is a constitutional proceeding. I am of two minds about the jurisdictional component. And if you don't know what we're talking about when we say jurisdiction, I do think that's kind of the wrong word to use here. Mm -hmm. It is really a question of the Senate's power to try a former official versus a current one. And I think this argument was made inelegantly to be generous during the trial by the former president's lawyers. But it's not a bananas argument. It makes sense to say the constitutional imperative tied to impeachment is removal of the president. That's certainly how ordinary citizens think of it, that you impeach a president in order to remove the president from office. There is, though, the power under the Constitution to also prohibit the former president or other government official from seeking office again. And so the argument that the Senate doesn't have power here is that Removal comes first, and if you remove, then you may also bar from running for office again. And the contrary argument that was advanced very, very competently Mm -hmm. by the House impeachment managers is that the Constitution doesn't in any way say that. They are both there, and that the Constitution doesn't contain an exception for the president's behavior in January, and that, in fact, it's more important to be able to regulate the president's behavior in January because our democracy is at its most fragile during the transition from one Mm -hmm. administration to another. But I think I don't want to be too dismissive of the jurisdiction argument because it isn't nonsensical. I think people are hiding behind it because the facts are bad. And they tell you all the time in in law school, you know, when you are arguing the law, it's because the facts aren't on your side. And sometimes you argue the facts because the law is not on your side. And in this case, as we'll discuss, I think the law is on the side of the facts and the facts on the side of the law. I think it all hangs together pretty congruently. But I do want to say that I'm bugged a little bit by the concept of precedent in the Senate. Because while I understand that the Senate looked at this exact issue around the Secretary of War under President Ulysses S. Grant and decided in favor of exercising its power, there are lots of places that we're currently having conversation about whether what the Senate used to do still makes sense. And I think we undercut some of those arguments when we say in one context, precedent is totally binding, but not in another. And I think we undercut the notion that an impeachment trial is just political. And I worry whenever we layer on all kinds of legalistic terms that really don't apply, because the fact of the matter is the senators set the rules here and the senators can change the rules. So I don't think it was wrong to consider this question at the outset of the trial. I do think the question has now been decided by this Senate and that we should move on to a full consideration of the facts. When I was watching the House impeachment managers make their case that the Senate has the power to impeach a former president, which I thought they made very well, I thought the January exception argument was incredibly compelling, that basically you're saying they can do anything they want that last month. There's no accountability that are that the goal is accountability, not necessarily removal. But it felt like what they didn't respond to. But what I feel is the undercurrent of the argument on the other side is, yeah, we might have impeached former officials, but they weren't president. And it feels like one more time and in one more way that the Republican Party is pushing this sort of unitary theory of the executive that basically once you're president, you can do whatever you want. And this isn't new to Donald Trump. 
It just the manifestations of it under Donald Trump are even more dangerous and obvious. Right. But this was a huge issue during George W. Bush's presidency. We know Bill Barr is a big believer in this theory. And it just feels like this is one more brick in a wall of the idea that the president does whatever he or she wants. And how is that constitutional? How is that in any way, shape or form living up to our idea of checks and balances and three co-equal branches? Like I I felt a little bit of it when House Manager Raskin was arguing like he's trying to decide the Senate is powerless. But it's almost like what I wanted him to say is like, you've taken enough of your power away. Y'all have, you know, impeded the power of this body over and over again for decades. And this could be the final nail in the coffin. Do you want Congress to remain powerful at all? Do you want Congress to remain as a check on the executive branch? Because sometimes it feels like you don't. Sometimes it feels like you believe that the president is all powerful. Once you're in the executive branch, you're in charge. And it just felt like a really clear manifestation of that argument that I'm not sure they ever responded to, but feels like even if it's not what's exactly being articulated is like the theory underneath it all. Which is especially bizarre when you look at some of the senators who are dug in on this because they are typically opponents of the unitary executive idea. Senator Paul from Kentucky, our home state, rails against the notion that the executive is all powerful, right? There is a sense from him that the legislature should absolutely be the strongest body, and especially on matters of war and national security. We've let the executive get way out of control. So I'm really confused about the Mm -hmm. philosophical underpinning of his understanding here. I think in another universe, you could put uh, Ted Cruz in that category. Um, You could perhaps put Mike Lee in that category. So I'm trying... To put aside my instinct to say, well, everything is happening in bad faith and to really grapple with the pieces of this that I think could be taken seriously and that are hard questions in some ways. And I struggle when I match the human beings advancing the arguments with the pieces of philosophy that I could take seriously and argue against because I see such inconsistency. I mean, it's hard not to think or give any sort of benefit of the doubt when you read the reporting that like Josh Hawley's up there with his feet up in the gallery, not listening at all. But I'm, I will begrudgingly admit, you know, not everybody on the Republican side is Josh Hawley. But it, it did feel to me like, you know, and I don't, I don't necessarily think it's totally hypocritical on the Republican side because I do think that they have been advancing this argument for a while, Rand Paul aside. But it just feels like such a scary. Uh, articulation of that idea that like once the like the president can do what the president wants to do without legal consequence, without congressional consequences, without electoral consequences, in a lot of ways. And to hear that, you know, so clearly articulated by the House managers and really walked through just. Yeah, it's I, I don't understand how you listen to that particular day one argument, see it play out over the next couple decades and say, no, it'll be OK. I think the more compelling argument is that impeachment is such a severe remedy that we should only employ it when the public can't speak on a question and that the public has spoken on the question of President Trump. Now, again, I don't find that compelling because I am persuaded by the fact that the transfer of power is so fragile that for the future, this trial is much less about Donald Trump to me than about future presidents Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and future public officials and what we expect of them. And so I am persuaded that we need to set that precedent for the future. But as to Donald Trump, and I think if you're on his defense team, this is the way you have to take it. As to Donald Trump, the public has rendered a verdict. The public has Mm. spoken. And so I can see thinking, why are we going through this exercise when in some ways he has suffered the ultimate accountability of losing? And I think that's how you try to separate this January exception idea from an October exception for nominating people to the Supreme Court. I mean, we've got lots of discussion in the Senate going on over the past five, six years about what happens when we're close Mm -hmm. to an election Mm -hmm. and especially what happens when elections 
keeps spreading. We're always in election season in some ways. And so I think it's perilous for us to establish these time frames under which constitutional powers don't operate, whether we're talking about the court or impeachment or anything else. And that's something worthy of discussion. So I'm going to say something now that contradicts my attempt to really understand the good faith of this. I just want to acknowledge that. On the other hand, if you are one of the senators who is really dug in on jurisdiction, but you don't 100% buy it, I think it's particularly insidious to hide behind that argument Mm -hmm. because it is denying the American public the trial. And the trial itself, whether you vote to convict or not, is a form of accountability. Right. And it's a form of allowing the American public to process what is a historically significant and unusual and dangerous event. And so if you don't 100 percent believe that the Senate lacks power to have this trial and you're kind of hiding behind that argument, I think that's really fundamentally lacking in integrity. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, you know, we've given great emphasis to the legal argument, but I think, honestly, the impact on day one and particularly day two was the sort of emotional intensity of the argument made. You know, on day one, in the midst of this jurisdictional debate, the House managers played a 14-minute video of footage from January 6th that was incredibly powerful. And incredibly impactful. You know, I choked up numerous times during the just this jurisdictional argument. I thought that House Manager Raskin's moment where he said, you know, I hope one day you can come back to me to his daughter. And she said, Dad, I don't want to come back to the Capitol. And him choking up about that was so affecting and just so sad. You know, I... I know Professor Raskin, and that's how I know him. He was a law school professor of mine. And I worked on his very first campaign for the Maryland Senate. I, you know, knew his children as little bitty kids. And so just to 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 hear him and to know, like, the dedication of his life to these causes and how much he believes in our democracy and to, you know, to become a constitutional professor and then run for office and do all this. And then, of course, his intense personal tragedy losing his son, Tommy, and then coming to the certification and bringing his daughter and his son-in-law and all this and to know that he's really dedicated his life. And I, I just in that moment, I like I knew how heartbreaking that had to be to hear from one of your children saying, like, I don't want to come. Just broke my heart. It broke my heart. And I thought that all of them, but particularly House Manager Raskin, walked that line of making an incredibly clear legal argument and also not neglecting the emotional impact of what we're talking about. It is a very unusual circumstance that every person sitting in that room has a personal connection to what's Mm -hmm. happening. You know, Twitter went ablaze at the end of day two because Mike Lee moved to strike from the record something that was said about a phone call placed to him in error by the president. And Twitter starts going, well, Mike Lee just made himself a witness. Well, he's already a witness, and so is everybody in the room. Mm -hmm. And in a way, the way the trial is proceeding under the rules that the senators agreed to, you're getting all kinds of witness testimony without the benefit of cross-examination. And that's Mm -hmm. something that the president's lawyers have to figure out how they want to respond to. And I think that they wisely understand that cross-examination is probably not going to be helpful in this matter. But I really respect that the House managers are not trying to compartmentalize their own experiences Mm -hmm. from the presentation of the trial. And I also appreciate how, in addition to the emotional, psychological, kind of spiritual impact on everyone of having lived through this violent day, they're not compartmentalizing how this relates to what they all do. You heard them saying What would it be like if in your races you went on television in your state and said, stop counting while I'm ahead? We don't do that. Well, before we move on to day two, which I definitely want to dive into in great detail and move on from the jurisdictional question that was on day one, I think we're going to have to spend a moment, a moment or two, on the Trump defense team 
Bruce Castor and David Schoen went and they they spoke some words. I'm I'm willing to say that they spoke some words. I'm not sure particularly Bruce Castor made an actual argument. It was truly some of the worst legal <laughs> work I've ever seen. And that's saying something. And I don't think that that is an, a hot or spicy take at all. It seems to be the consensus, the conclusion of like Republican senators, Donald Trump himself, basically everyone. Like it was a very, very poor showing. It was illustrative of what a difficult task it is to represent the president in this matter. It's just very hard. It's very hard to make any kind of reasoned argument that he was unconnected to what unfolded at the Capitol. Mm -hmm. You can talk about it as a matter of degrees, but it's also hard because you have a client in the president who wants to be defended absolutely. If this were a criminal trial... The president's attorneys would be advising him that the best thing you can do here is cop to some guilt and remorse Mm -hmm. and say narrowly, I understand this was unwise, but it did not rise to the level of criminal. That's the best you can do, I think, representing the president with integrity and competence in a matter like this. And you've got a client who doesn't want that. Right. He He wants an absolute defense. He wants Mm -hmm. absolute vindication. And I don't think that's available in this case for him. And that's really difficult. Plus, you have a client who's been very erratic about who's defending him for a variety of reasons. Wanting certain arguments made that some lawyers weren't willing to make. It's been reported there have been payment disputes. So I think the most gracious way you look at the performance of Castor and Schoen is to say, number one, this was really tough. And number two, they didn't really have as much time to prepare as it seemed like they should have to prepare (laughs) because people got switched in and out. The team wasn't really solidified until the last minute. And then I think the third thing is, in order to get yourself to a place where you're willing to take on this incredibly difficult representation, I think you have to create a little bit of a bubble for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they were prepared for how graphically on day one during the legal presentation that bubble was going to be popped by the emotion of what the House managers presented. I think they probably should have been more prepared for that. I have been chewed out in the hallway of a large law firm for a lot less preparation Mm -hmm. for an internal conversation, let alone one of the biggest representations I could ever take on in my life. But I think that they were genuinely emotionally affected, too. And that's that's tough. Yeah. You know, there's been like a lot of moments as someone who used to work in the Senate that things have bubbled up. And I thought, oh, you don't understand senators or like even a reminder myself of like, oh, right. Senators, this this is being made to senators. One is senators do not like to have their time wasted. And I mean, I do think in large part, Bill Cassidy's vote that it was constitutional to impeach a former president, which was a flip from his previous vote that it wasn't, was just a like, how dare you waste my time? Like, how dare you get up there and not even know what you're talking about and to like babble on for 30 minutes? And like you could hear it in the frustration and all their voices. They don't like to have their time wasted. The defense team is providing them zero cover, right? No cover at all for taking a vote to acquit, which is going to make them mad. And, you know, Speaking to some of the the real affecting like videos, especially I think on day two, it's like you just realize that part of the reason they don't like to have their time wasted is because they're very busy. Like I think I in my head I thought like, oh, well, they're all like they have a full and complete picture. They were probably like getting security briefings on what went down. But like, no, the very next day on January 7th, much less the night of January 6th, they were still senators. They still had to do their work. They still had to go about their job. They're still getting peppered with media requests to respond to whatever's happening right then that day. And, like, it's in, it's intense to realize, like, they actually haven't had a moment to not only be fully assessed of what happened, but to, like, see it all put together for them. And just on so many levels realizing, like, oh, like, they've been senators since January 6th until today being busy doing all this fundraising and policy work and media requests that fill a United States senator's schedule. And they don't often have to just sit still and listen and take in what's happened to them and to their colleagues. And I think that to me was like really, really hitting home throughout the day one and particularly day two. 
I also think it's difficult if you are part of Trump's defense team to actually analyze what the stakes are for him to decide Mm. on the best strategy. Because in some ways, the stakes for Donald Trump as a human being are sort of low compared to what they could be in a bunch of other different scenarios. His legacy is going to be that he was twice impeached, whether he gets convicted or not. And his legacy is going to be understood however it's understood in historic context around this event. His age has to be a factor when you think about how devastating it would be or not for him to not be able to run again. Even if he can't run again, and I don't know that he would or that it would get any traction by the time that rolls around, but even if he can't run again, he can have all sorts of influence in the party through a pack or through media appearances or through creating his own channel or whatever. So in some ways, I think, does it really matter to him if he gets convicted here? I know it does psychologically, but as a lawyer who's trying to put some concrete stakes around this and figure out how to make my best presentation, I think that's rough. And on the other side of things, he's also going to have whatever criminal and civil exposure that he's going to have, regardless of the outcome of this trial. And in some ways, I might be talking to him about how a conviction from the Senate could possibly help me in the criminal context. Hmm. If I get in a criminal I'm not saying that this would absolutely work, but I'd rather have it than not to say, listen, he was the president when this happened and the accountability for the president oh, yeah. has been assessed. It like links you. It, it almost extends the the liability protection. You could argue that. Would they you fall could for argue it? it? Maybe not, but you could definitely argue that. Right. Like if I they, don't know how persuasive that ends up mm-hmm. being, but I think it's, it's a nice thing to have if you are right. actually dragged in to court on criminal charges, which the state of Georgia is looking hard at. Yeah. And I think there will be other people who look hard at that. And so I, I just think figuring out how to be his lawyer here is a really difficult task. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. All right, let's move on and talk about day two, where I thought the house managers were, again, highly organized and walked us through step by step what they were arguing. Like, I never was lost, right? So we started with the buildup to January 6th. So let's talk about what he was saying pre-election, what he was saying during the election, what he was saying post-election. Let's look at the tweets. Let's look at the speeches at his rallies. Let's look at his reaction to his supporters enacting sort of physical violence on that Texas highway, which I had forgotten about, to undermine the election, to really build up this strategy of stopping the steal, quote unquote, that was really pointing to January 6th. And then, Lord, Stacey Blaskett, whoo! That woman slayed in every sense of the word, like walking us through that actual day with all this. You know, they kept saying we have footage people haven't seen yet. It's very affecting. And they were not lying. They were not over delivering and under promising. We saw security footage of Eugene Goodman running and warning Mitt Romney. He was going in the wrong direction and then Mitt Romney turning around and running. We saw Chuck Schumer with a security detail who had a dang machine gun running up down, like going up a ramp and then realizing they were about to confront the mob, turning around and running back. We saw the senators themselves, as Eric Swalwell so, you know, dramatically put it, were 58 steps away from the mobs as they were being evacuated. We see Vice President Pence in security footage being evacuated. And like they have this this really great model where you can see where the mob is during all these evacuations. And I just thought, and not only was she so, like, brilliant as at walking through all this very, like, kind of technical, here's where they were, here's where, where you guys were, all that stuff. But I also thought some of her, like, more emotional moments, in particular when she was citing the sacrifices of the people on 9-11, you know, because the reporting was that the plane in Pennsylvania was headed for D.C. We don't know if it was the White House or the Capitol. But like citing like we were there, like we all remember the sacrifices those people made to protect the Capitol that he incited this mob to attack was incredibly emotional for me. And just the way that they walked through that entire day and also what happened that day and then his actions during that time. And his inability to stop it, his clearly like had no desire to stop it, the way that he was sending the tweets out about Mike Pence, why Pence was under threat. I thought the the video of the guy with the blowhorn reading the tweets to the crowd, not to mention they're like all wrapped up in his flags, throwing his flags like javelins at people. I mean, it just all of it. They were so meticulous at every corner. I was listening to an NPR reporter say like in the first impeachment, like like you couldn't be mad at yourself if you lost focus because it was so technical and it was kind of boring at parts. He's like, but this was not the case here. Like there was no moment where you could look away. What Day two distilled for me is that this is not a trial about speech. It's a trial about conduct. Mm. I think in the coverage, and especially if you are listening to people who want to defend the president, the best way to defend the president is to try to make this about speech and to narrow the question to were the words spoken by Donald Trump to the crowd on January 6th enough to incite this violence? That's the narrow question you've got to bring it around to if you want to get away from finding the president culpable. 
Right. And I think they're anticipating that's what the defense is going to do. Right. They're going to try to like look at let's just look at this sentence. And I thought they were so brilliant at being like, oh, no, we're not going to pull one little word or one little sentence out. We're going to give you the entire picture. And don't you dare look away. Well, that protection for the president is an extension of the last four years of I don't like the tweet, but what he does works for me. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And day two's presentation by going all the way back to the summer. Yep. When the president is saying, I will not accept the results if we lose. He's saying yep. that all the way back into June. It shows how because he was the president and because, honestly, he's so good at branding and marketing that he drives a very consistent message. Mm-hmm. And because he saw in real time how that message was developing into action on the part of his supporters. He saw people plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan. He saw people surrounding the homes of election officials. He saw people in almost all 50 states showing up at polling places armed and and ready to create disruption because he so consistently drove home the message for so long, because he watched the consequences of that escalating, that it wasn't about him giving one speech. It was about what he knew about using his own power mm-hmm. and how he chose to use that power to drive people to the Capitol and how he chose not to use that power once they were in. Mm-hmm. If you are a person who doesn't want to convict the president, I think you have to grapple not only with whether you think he incited people to breach the Capitol. I think you have to grapple with once they did how he responded. To yes. You. Yes. I thought that part was so, so impactful in their argument where they're saying like, OK, fine. But then you... You were calling him to try to get him to call off the mob. So how are you out of one side of your mouth going to say he had no control over these people and then watch people in their tweets, people who used to work for him saying they'll only listen to you call it off. It doesn't work that they only listen to you to stop, but they don't listen to you when you say go. That is an inconsistent argument. And I think they all know it. It is so difficult. That's me being nice because the word I really want to use is infuriating. To watch all these videos, to hear this truly, truly tight argument, (laughs) but to watch these videos of the senators run and to know they're going to go on cable news and say, I haven't heard anything that'll change my mind. It is just hard. It's like I can be in this very intellectual, analytical place, hear the legal arguments, think through them, even sort of sit with my emotions and then to come back around to this most likely will not change a thing. It is so, so hard to sit with that, to listen to Lindsey Graham on cable news say, well, they're converting more people to acquittal. Like, it's just, it makes me feel like my entire body is aflame. I think there's a personality aspect that Lindsey Graham is banking on. The idea that an emotional presentation per se backfires Mm -hmm. because Republicans like to think of themselves, and I can say this because I was one and this was true of me, as more dispassionate. Mm -hmm. And so the the lengthy hammering home of this emotion, I think Senator Graham is banking on people who identify as Republicans rolling their eyes at that. I've been trying to make, like, for myself, (laughs) the best case I can for not convicting the president, because I do want to try to stay in a place where I understand what other people are thinking. I don't think it's the First Amendment argument, because I think that if you decide that the president's speech is protected from congressional oversight by the First Amendment, the oath of office doesn't mean anything, Mm -hmm. and the incitement exception to the First Amendment is gone. Not just for the president, for everyone. I think if you decide in this case that his speech was protected, you are saying in no scenario can someone speak in a way that subjects them to liability from the government. And I I don't think that's where we are. I also don't think the best reason for not conviction is doing the, well, don't take him literally thing that we've been doing for five years. Because we are talking about a pattern of conduct more than one speech. 
I don't think it's this is a waste of time. We need to move on as a country. Number one, it's just so clear how traumatized everyone is. We cannot move on. Like we could desire to move on and still not be able to. And when you have this lingering sense among members of Congress that there are people among them who they can't trust and are dangerous, that that has to be figured out. So we really can't move on. And I also think it's super nihilistic to say, like, we just got to get on to the next thing because this is too painful. That That's led us wrong as a country in so many respects. And mm-hmm. if you say this is a waste of time and you're a senator, well, you get to decide if it's a waste of time or not. Like, if you're telling us that it's a waste of time, then you've just made a decision for it to be so. Because you're there in the room. You can mm-hmm. impact whether it is time well spent or not. And I don't think it's the sort of if this, then that argument. Like, if we're going to hold the president accountable here, then what about Maxine Waters or what about Cory Booker or what about Democrats who've told people, hey, get in their faces, tell them you don't like what they're doing about the Trump administration? Because, number one, all things are not equal. And number two... This is a really good forum to set a standard of conduct going forward. This is a good forum for everybody to consider what their words drive people to do. And I think that's important for the country. I think setting a new standard is is a very good outcome of using this time. And so the best argument I could come up with, those are all the things that I tried and discarded. The best argument that I could come up with is something about the intersection of individual responsibility and leadership. The House impeachment managers, I think, very wisely have not been condescending at all about Trump supporters. They have talked about the people who breached the Capitol mostly as human beings who listened to the commander-in-chief give Mm -hmm. them an order and believed in a genuine way that they were supposed to follow that order. Yep. Who believed in a genuine way that the election was stolen and that they were there to defend the country the same way people they have been taught to lionize from the American Revolution did. And I think that is politically very savvy. I don't think Republican operatives can cut footage from this trial to say, see how the Democrats think we're all hicks or whatever. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I think there is a risk in making it so much about Trump that you absolve individuals of responsibility for their choices. Because certainly there were people who would even go so far as to say the election was stolen, who would not have made the decision to get violent in the Capitol the way the mob did. I'm, I'm ultimately not persuaded by that argument either, because I think we can do two things at once. I think there is a leadership level of accountability and an individual level of accountability. Mm-hmm. And I think we can hold on to those things. But that's the best argument that I could come up with for why you wouldn't convict Trump. I, I think it is so clear that he has involvement, that but for Trump, I think he is the causation at every level. But for Trump, people would not have believed the election was stolen. But for Trump, they would not have gone to the Capitol. But for Trump, they would not have Mm -hmm. ransacked the Capitol and gotten violent. But for Trump's inaction, the Capitol could have been secured much earlier in the day. Like, he is the causation through and through. I can sort of get myself to a place where you say, yeah, but these people did it. I I understand that. I just think you have to hold it together. I'm glad you're going through that mental exercise. I am not. I cannot get myself to a place in any way, shape, or form where I believe that a vote to acquit is anything than a purely cold political calculus. Now, I will say this. This is what I thought through. I don't understand, even under the most craven political analysis, why you would still vote to acquit. I don't understand why, if you are a Republican and plan on continuing to be a Republican, you want to double down on casting your party's lot with a man who lost you the House and the Senate and the presidency. Really, I cannot. He is bad for the party. I'm glad you've decided that he riled up some rural support that wasn't there before, but they will not continue once he is gone. Even if they'll continue now and you've lost so much by gaining that small piece. I just, I don't understand, again, under the most craven political analysis, why this is still a smart vote. I really don't. I really, really don't. I mean, maybe if you're up in election in 2022, maybe, maybe. 
But otherwise, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, I think the the piece that analogized Trump to Sarah Palin was so smart because I do think that that's much closer to what the rest of his political career will play out to be. Like, this man never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. You think that's going to stop now? Like, you think that every choice he's going to make from here on forward is to shore up the Republican Party in his base? Y'all, what are you doing? That's what bothers me about it is like I get that it's a political vote and I still think it's a bad political vote. That's similar to something that I've been thinking about. I think it's a bad political vote depending on the timeline that you're operating in. I think your point about when you when you're up for election and what you think is happening in your district is all fair. What I don't understand is as a Republican elected official wanting to maintain the status quo of being so beholden to him and to voters who like him. Don't you want out of this? Yeah. I mean, it's still I think Bill Cassidy does. I think that's part of what we're seeing. I think he was like, I'm done. I don't want to be like this. I don't I want some freedom. Why are you going to hustle and kill yourself to be an elected official and then be totally dependent, not even dependent, generous, scared of this man for the entirety of your career? I was reading Matt Iglesias's analysis of the Biden covid relief plan this morning And he used a term in it. He was talking about economics and about um, high multiplier investment. So the idea that certain ways of stimulating the economy end up paying quick and large dividends because they are high multiplier ways of investing. And then there are other ways. And in his mind, he would put regressive tax cuts in this category that are low multipliers, right? You invest a lot in the economy and you don't get much in return. And I was thinking about how the impeachment trial could be a very high multiplier event for America. Because one, it's a big deal just to have days of everyone conceding that this was a fair election. You even heard the president's lawyers conceding that Joe Biden won and he won fairly. And that's important. And hearing this stop the steal referred to as the big lie over and over, I think that pays big dividends Mm -hmm. for American confidence, not only in the Biden administration, but in future elections. I also think that matters a ton when you have people like Josh Mandel in Ohio who are saying they're going to run in the next cycle on the idea that 2020 was a stolen election. Mm. This trial has the potential to really shut that stuff down or at least shut down the effectiveness of it. And I would think that Republican elected leaders would want that. I think it could be high multiplier in that sense of setting a better standard of conduct for people. I think it could be high multiplier in wrestling with individual responsibility and leadership responsibility. It seems to me that this is your best chance if you are a Republican elected official to get yourself out of being beholden to interests that I think for the vast majority of them, they are sick to death of. Mm -hmm. There's really one more aspect of this that I wanted to ask you about, Sarah. Impeachment is done. The trial itself is being discussed and written about both by senators and by everyone else as just a foregone conclusion. We talked on our last podcast about how maybe not. My maybe not has grown a little bit because of Senator Cassidy's decision and because of how effective I think the presentation has been so far, despite comments from people like Senator Graham, Senator Scott. I just think it's really important for us to think about the circular nature of talking about things in politics, elections, polling, votes on particular issues as foregone conclusions. I just think we are strangling ourselves and our potential to actually function as a democratic republic by pretending that everything is already baked in. Yeah, you know, this is my beef with some of the reporting around polls. It's not just my beef. It's lots of people's beef that it, it the something that's supposed to become observational or descriptive becomes prescriptive and becomes the story. Like it's supposed to be a part of the story. You know, you wouldn't be doing your job if you're reporting on impeachment or if you're a political pundit and you're talking about impeachment without saying, without, you know, correctly assessing that this will be a tough vote and that the, you know, Republican Party has shown that they're willing to stand by Donald Trump 
and that that most likely will continue. It's like we can't ignore that. I think it would be naive and inaccurate to say, like, they're all walking in there totally objective. Who knows how it'll come out? <laughs> like, that's not accurate either. But to make, but to, you can say that without making it and describing it as a foregone conclusion and like in, in perpetuating that idea. And because I think it, it leaves voters in a place where they or citizens in a place where they feel like they have no role to play because it's already done. The goose is already cooked. And, you know, I plan on calling both of my senators who I'm pretty sure I know how they're going to vote because I still think it's important to say, I expect you as your constituent to look at this evidence and vote to convict. And I just think when we talk about it that way, like people just feel like it's a a process happening outside of them and their role as citizens. And it's so tough because I don't expect my senators to take a raw count of what they're hearing from constituents and make a calculus. Mm -hmm. I want them to exercise their own judgment. The best thing I've heard Mitch McConnell say as one of his constituents in a very long time is this is a vote of conscience and you should take it as such. I want them to. I don't want people to just represent their districts in such a raw way. That is part of the cycle that I would think elected leaders are anxious to get out of. Yeah. I I want them to be more in that trustee model where when I vote for them, I'm not saying hey, now go do what I ask you to do. I'm saying, hey, I'm, I'm putting my confidence in you and I'm trusting you to go make some decisions. And, and I want you to take what we have to say about that into account, but I don't want you to take it as gospel. Yeah. I just worry that when you see that the questions reporters are asking, and this is not to be like, the media is the worst, because I don't feel that way. I especially have thought so much about how hard this has to be mm-hmm. to cover for people who also experienced it. The journalists there are also victims, right, and are dealing with their own traumas from this day. When the question, though, is put to it, have you changed your mind instead of what did you learn today or where are you now or how is this shaping your thinking? I worry that we just give permission to people. You know, it's kind of like children will rise to the standard that you express you believe they can they can handle, right? If you talk to your child with higher expectations, they will meet those expectations. And I worry that we're talking about our senators with such low expectations that they are meeting those expectations. Yeah, there and there's this also, you know, kind of drawing these two threads together. There is this sense that Donald Trump gets away with it because no one calls him to the mat and no one calls him to the mat because Donald Trump gets away with it. That is so circular to me. That feels like this is your chance to disrupt this. This is your chance to exhibit leadership, which is what, you know, we've all been saying. And I think, you know, the reality is United States senators have a deeper and more complex picture because I think the narrative in in the United States as just citizens is nobody ever steps to him inside the Republican Party. But the truth is there's been a massive exodus from the Republican Party and that they saw lots of people step to him like Jeff Flake, like Bob Corker, and who a bunch of other people retiring or tons of representatives who left and were like, it's not worth it. And so I I don't think, it you know, I don't want to be so dismissive as like they've never done it, but because people did do it and suffered political consequences for it. And I'm sure that is very ever like ever present in their minds. But at the same time, like I just I I do feel like there is this self-perpetuating idea that like. He can continue to act with impunity because there is no leadership. And if there was enough leadership inside the party we wouldn't be in this spot or we could at least, you know, I don't know what, what I'm saying. We, I'm not a Republican, never have been, but like putting them on a different path. And I I don't know. I just, it feels so circular. Like, of course it never happens because you've never done it. And I, I don't know. It's just, it's very, very frustrating. Well, and I think everyone has an interest in what's happening with the Republican Party because we just have the two parties. Mm-hmm. We just have the two. So we do mm-hmm. need them both to work on some level. Well, before we move on from impeachment, I want to say one more thing really quickly about the House managers that I was deeply appreciative of. As a person who has lost a family member to suicide, I thought it was incredibly powerful that they continue to list 
both the officer who died that day and the two officers that died by suicide after January 6th in their list of victims of the insurrection. I think that that conversation has advanced tremendously in our culture and the way that they are speaking about those officers will continue to advance that conversation and increase empathy for those who die by suicide and those who love them. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We always want to make sure that we include a moment of hope in every episode. And today we have our first, I think, COVID is on the decline moment of hope. And it makes me really excited. Yes. I mean, COVID is on the decline. There's no debate in that sentence, right? Cases are down. Hospitalizations are down. Deaths are down. Now, that does not mean that we are done. That does not mean that things couldn't change. But for right now... The trajectory holds nothing but positive news. I like the Atlantic headline, the pandemic is in tenuous retreat. I think that Mm. is a totally accurate way to talk about it. Yes, yes. This was a thing I enjoyed reading. In the U.S., 
about 110 million people have likely had the virus, including unconfirmed cases, researchers say. And another 33 million have received at least one vaccine shot. Combined, these two groups make up about 43 percent of all Americans, which appears to be enough to slow the spread. So I think there's a lot going on. I think there's a larger amount of our fellow citizens who have immunity for a lot of reasons. So listen, and some of them are bad. Some of them are bad reasons that it's not good that 110 million people have likely had the virus. That number should have been smaller, but it is what it is. And now we have a lot of immunity. I read a thing that was like people see the light at the end of the tunnel and are like doubling down their efforts, which is 300 percent where I am. I'm like, no, I did not make it this far to get COVID this late in the game. I think that's part of it. I was reading an epidemiologist that says like you also just they have about a three month span where they really spike in the winter. And so we might just be coming to an end of that. Like there, I think there's a lot of things going on. But I do think it's really important to recognize like the trajectory is headed in a direction we want it to head. Again, can't toot this horn enough. The vaccines are a modern medical miracle. And so there is lots of reason to hope. So the CDC tells us to make sure our masks fit correctly and that a good way to do that is to wear a surgical mask that has the wire pinch around your nose and then a cloth mask on top of it. We'll just amend our saying, keep two masks on and your attitude's up. Right. But now if you're using, which is what I wear, a KN95, they say there is not need to double them. Just want to clarify that. Because it fits that. more tightly around mm-hmm. the face, right? It does. Mine leaves a mark on my face, like right below my eyes. So masks on, attitude's up. We're getting through this. Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? Well, I do want to say such a huge thank you to our community who just feels really invested in my hip and me living my best life. And I appreciate that. I have already signed up for Happy Hips, which is a class on which I thought was really helpful. Talked about like the reason a lot of women's hips hurt, particularly postpartum, is we're asking them to do too much. That clicked for me. I've got a gait consultation like your, your actual gate when you walk consultation coming up. I got endless shoe recommendations. I do want to clarify, I'm fully in on Birkenstocks, y'all. Don't worry. Like I have like four pair, like fully, fully in on the Birkenstocks in the summer. Um, but I got really cool recommendations for house slippers. And I really loved all the resources as far as like actual body mechanics and trying to tackle the problem from that perspective. So just, I love, and, and y'all, the person who sent their recommendations and signed their email with have the best tips available to you. I cannot. I cannot. But this community, you're too much. I, too, have been reading all of the recommendations that came in, and I was really convicted by one person who talked about what sounded like a modified version of legs up the wall, where you're lying on the floor and you're putting your knees at a a 90 degree angle with your feet on a chair for 20 minutes. And here's what convicted Mm -hmm. me about it. I am a longtime practitioner of yin yoga and restorative yoga. And I 100% believed this listener who said something happens at the 20 minute mark. I think that's Mm -hmm. right. I don't think that we trust really in all aspects of life how much good time does. And so it makes total sense to me. I'm absolutely tonight when we turn on the Queen's Gambit, which we've got to finish. I'm I'm so tired of miserable things happening to this poor woman. But <laughs> I'm going to do it for 20 minutes and start to make that a habit. Because when she said that, something in my brain went, yes, I see the truth of this. This is going to make my life better. I'm going for it. Well, our community is so smart, you know, and I think that that legs up the wall links this to something else for me. You know, when I was clenching my jaw at night which I think so many people do. We used to have a Bruxism beat on our other podcast, The Nuance Life, where I was like really tackling this Bruxism issue. Now they just call it COVID teeth. I don't know if you knew this, like dentists have a term. They just call it COVID teeth. And I love the legs up the wall because I don't want to just get a mouth guard and treat the symptom. I want to figure out what, what my body is trying to tell me. And so I loved all these recommendations about like exercises and particularly the people who are like, let's talk about how our body's working and why, like what this is trying to tell you, what signal this is trying to send to you and respond there. Because I think that was sort of my hesitation to the orthotics, to the like comfy shoes all the time is it felt like, you know, (laughs) my friend's husband, who's a doctor, uh, calls the way her and I talk about this stuff, paleo medicine. Like, but there's a sense of like, well, we obviously weren't wearing super padded shoes 100 years ago, and we didn't have some of these issues. So like, what's going on? I'm going to get a million emails about that and regret I said that. But you get what I'm trying to get at. Like, I don't want to just 
treat the symptom. I will. And I think that's important. But I want to make sure there's not something deeper I'm missing as far as like my like body mechanics or muscular weakness or any of that. And that's what I that's what I really, really appreciated. Also, people be sending me the cutest sneakers Except somebody sent me these adorable New Balances and they're sold out everywhere. But man, y'all have got y'all. You just you came through with the Rex is what we're trying to say here. Well, another very cool outside of politics segment. We will move on from this topic on Friday. But we do appreciate all of your input and hot tips about taking care of our hips. So thank you again for all your recommendations. I hope everybody has the best tips available to them. We will be back in your ears next Tuesday with more Pantsuit Politics. And until then, have the best weekend available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. David McWilliams. Allie Edwards. Martha Brunitsky. Amy Whited. Janice Elliott. Sarah Ralph. Barry Kaufman. Jeremy Sequoia. Lori Lodow. Emily Neasley. Allison Luzader. Tracy Putoff. Danny Osmond. Molly Kors. Julie Haller. Jared Minson. Marnie Johansson. The Creeps! Tawny Peterson. Sherry Blim. Tiffany Hasler. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless. Linda Daniel. Joshua Allen. And Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.